Thank you, Jackie. We're in Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to 16. Talking about selfless sacrifice. We're going to see that in this passage today with Abram and Lot. But I want to begin with this today. The movie Hacksaw Ridge is a true story of Desmond Doss, who enlists as a combat medic in the army after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Because of life circumstances and his religious beliefs, Doss is a conscientious objector. He refuses to carry a gun and only takes his medic kit and Bible into battle. <clears throat> this is from IMDb's website, then a synopsis of the, of, of the movie. Doss's unit is assigned to the 77th Infantry Division and deployed to the Pacific Theater. During the Battle of Okinawa, Doss's unit is informed that they are to relieve the 96th Infantry Division, which was tasked with ascending and securing the Mata Escarpment, which is they called Hacksaw Ridge. <clears throat> Both sides suffer heavy losses during the initial fight. Doss saves his squad mate, Smitty, earning his respect. As the Americans camp for the night, Doss reveals to Smitty that his aversion to holding a firearm stems from nearly shooting his drunken father, who threatened his mother with a gun. Smitty apologizes for doubting his courage, and the two reconcile. The next morning, <clears throat> the Japanese launch a massive counterattack and drive the Americans off the escarpment. Smitty is killed, while Howe and several of Doss's squad mates are left injured on the battlefield. Doss hears the cries of the dying soldiers and returns to save them, carrying the wounded to the cliff's edge and belaying them down by rope, each time praying to save one more. The arrival of dozens of wounded, once presumed dead, comes as a shock to the rest of the unit below. When day breaks, Doss rescues Howe and the two escape Hacksaw under enemy fire. <clears throat> Doss was awarded the Medal of Honor by President Harry S. Truman for rescuing 75 soldiers at Hacksaw Ridge. They thought they were dead. <clears throat> and yet he just kept going back. It was a selfless sacrifice to go back and just get one more. God, just give me one more. God, let me have one more. And he did. He kept going back till 75 soldiers were saved. <clears throat> when I think about a selfless sacrifice, I think about when Judy and I owned our home in Missouri, and there was one evening when a severe storm was coming through Missouri uh, at that point in our town, and we lost power, <clears throat> which meant that the sump pump in our basement uh, wouldn't run, which meant that we would have a swimming pool in our basement if I didn't do something about it. So I called my best friend uh, at the time. <clears throat> He's home with the Lord now and ask him to come over and help. He didn't hesitate. He just came, and we uh, took buckets and, and filled up a, a big toy chest uh, with water from out of the sub pump uh, bin. And we carried it up the stairs and through the garage and, and uh, you know, spilled the water down the driveway and went and, and kept doing this time after time after time. In between, I'm making phone calls to uh, just different people from the church where we attended, asking if anybody had a generator that I could borrow so that I could stop bailing water. <laughs> out of my basement. <clears throat> Finally found one, went and go, went to go pick it up, brought it home, fired it up, plugged in the sub pump, and the power came back on. Right? Isn't that how it normally works? <clears throat> and so I didn't have to use the generator for very long, but I was grateful that we had it. Um, as a result of that, I put a battery back up on the sub pump. Never got to use that thing. I paid all the money and then did all the installation and never had to use it again. But it was there. I was glad it was there. But um, long story uh, short, my best friend modeled selfless service and sacrifice. And I so much appreciate that. And perhaps you've experienced that in your own life. 
where someone has just selflessly served, maybe it was a family member or a friend or a neighbor who just helped you out when you were in need. They served and sacrificed without thinking about it. They were there for us. And, and, and while we've all been the recipient of selfless sacrifice and service, my guess is that we've all been the ones who've also helped others selflessly. Maybe it was a family member. Most of us understand what that's like. Maybe it was a friend or a neighbor that needed help, and we were there to help them. And so what we're going to see today in this passage of Scripture is that Lot found himself in a difficult situation because of where he had chosen to live. Pastor Mark talked about that last week. Abram may not have approved of Lot's dwelling choice down by uh, Sodom or Sodom, but that didn't stop him from serving and sacrificing his time and resources to help Lot out. Abram expressed the love of God to Lot by sacrificing selflessly for him, as we'll see today. And what Abraham models in this passage is something we should be doing as well. And so we're going to learn our big idea today is that Christ's love is evident through our selfless sacrifice. And so as we just pause to commit this to the Lord in prayer, just allow that big idea to kind of sink in today and begin to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your hearts and minds. Lord, we just come to you. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that it has stood the test of time and that, Lord, we can look into it today and just glean nuggets of truth, principles that you desire for us to learn and understand. I pray today, Lord, that you would allow those to encourage us, to transform us, to challenge us. Lord, I never want to be a stumbling block to your word going out in power. And so today, would your voice be heard and not my own? So that your power might be evident. That you might change us and transform us. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to see here is that First of all, Abram is a watcher, and then we're going to see that he's a warrior. <clears throat> and so as we dig into this passage of Scripture this morning, um, we're going to see that there's kings that are involved here. These are northeastern kings. <clears throat> and so this is what God's Word says. Uh, Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. At this time, Amphrathel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedor Laomer, king of Alam, and Tidale, king of Goy, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Amore, Sanav, king of Adma, Shemember, Member, king of um, I'm trying to remember how to Sev- Sevoim and the and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these uh, later kings joined forces in the valley of Sedim, the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedor La Omer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedar Kedor uh, La Omer and the kings allied with him went out and uh, defeated the Rephaites in uh, Ashtaroth, uh, these are just fancy names, aren't they? (laughs) Karnaim, the Zuzite in Ham, 
the Amites in Shavai Kirathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of uh, yeah, Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sedim against Kadur Laomer, king of Alam, Tidal, king of Goy, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sedim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So what we see here is, um, in verse 1, these four kings are listed in alphabetical order. I'm not sure why that is. It's just that's just how it is. Um, it was in the original Hebrew, I guess that way. But um, we're going to see that even though they're listed in alphabetical order, Kedor Laomer is the is their leader. So even though um, Amphro, uh, Amphro, Amraphel, king of Shinar, uh, is listed first, um, Shinar is also a name for Babylonia. And so uh, I don't. Yeah, there we go. Here, here's just a map showing you uh, where these different uh, nations were located. Um, and so Shinar, or Babylon, is right there kind of in the middle. Uh, Kador La Omer is from Elam, which is kind of uh, southwest, or southeast, I mean. And so Ariok, king of Elisar, uh, you see where that one's at, and then Tidal, the king of Goy, and kind of an idea of where all those nations. So these are kind of the northeastern kings uh, that were coming uh, to do battle uh, with the five kings. So we see the southwestern kings then as well. Bera, king of uh, Sedom, or Sodom. Uh, Bersha, king of Amorah, or Gomorrah. And then Shinav, king of Adma. And then Shemaver, king of Sevoim. And then they don't list the name of this king. They just say the king of Bela, which is also known as Soer. So the five kings from the Dead Sea area gathered together in the valley of Sedim, which is beside the Salt Sea, also known as the Dead Sea. And these five kings and their kingdoms have been subject to Kedor La Omer for 12 years. And perhaps they spoke uh, to each other and decided that as a group, they would be able to start and win a rebellion against Kedor La Omer. So in the 13th year, that's exactly what they did. They didn't want to live under the rule of this king anymore. They didn't want to have to pay the annual tribute to him anymore. It's, and it's probable that they thought they would be uh, only battling Kedor La Omer and his soldiers, not realizing that he would bring three other allies with him. So, you know, they're hoping this shouldn't be too bad. We're, we're five kings against one. This is easy. We'll be, if he comes and tries to, to take uh, ownership back of our land and try to get us to pay tribute again, this won't be hard at all. We'll just defeat him and send him home with his tail between his legs. This won't be difficult at all. So in the 14th year, Kador La Omer gathers three other kings and their armies together. 
They're not expecting that. The four northeastern kings begin their tour of terror on the northeastern side of the Jordan River, and they head south. So you're going to see a map come up. The red line is uh, the, what the four kings did. It highlights the, uh, um, the different uh, path that they took as they uh, begin this, uh, uh, this, this tour of terror. So they start there at the north, and they're on the eastern side um, of the Jordan River. And they're going down, and then they're going to get to the kind of the bottom, uh, close to the Persian Gulf, and then they're going to turn north again. We're going to uh, we saw all of that um, here in the scriptures. <clears throat> so these, um, then the blue line that you see here this morning, we'll, we'll talk about in just a little bit, which was Abram's uh, route that he did in order to go rescue uh, Lot and the rest of those uh, from Sodom. It appears as though the rebellion may have been larger than Kedor La Omer realized because we see that the four kings defeat six other kingdoms or groups on their way to battle with the five kings of the Dead Sea area. And I like what Golden Gay says, perhaps these other peoples have joined in the rebellion, though if so, one might expect Genesis to say so. Perhaps then the kings make their expedition worthwhile by taking over these other places, or perhaps they engage in preemptive strikes to prevent these other peoples from coming to the five kings or coming to the aid um, of the five kings to support them. So it's like they're, one of those two ways, it's either preemptive or they're just like, hey, while we're out here you know, at war, we might as well just take over some more places uh, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So what we see here is the Raphai and uh, Ashtaroth Karnaim, and then the Zuzim and, and Ham, and then the Amim and, and Shava Kiryathayim. These are just incredible names, aren't they? Aren't you, don't you wish you could be up here? No? Okay. All right. Just checking out. Hori in the hill country of Sair as far as El Paran near the desert. And this is as far south as they go before crossing the Jordan River and heading north again. And when they head north, they go to, to um, On Mishpat and defeat the Amalekites, uh, which were in Kadesh. And you see that all up on the map. And then also they defeat the Amorites living in um, Hatzetzon, Tomer. And so uh, the, the four northeastern uh, kings finally arrive at the Valley of Sidim, the Salt Sea, and they find the five kings from that area gathered together for battle. So it's not surprising that the four kings are able to defeat the five kings because think about this. They must be a pretty powerful force to deal with. They've already defeated six um, other kingdoms or groups, and they're still able to cause these five kings to flee. Kedor Omer chose well, didn't he? His allies. He's like, hey, why don't you guys come with me? You guys got pretty strong. And so this is what's happening. And then we see this side note about the Valley of Sedim being full of tar pits or butum, as some translations say. You're going to see some of these are man-made, where they actually dig down uh, to, to get to the tar, and some of them are just natural, but these are some uh, actual tar pits there close to the Salt Sea. And they play an important role in this battle. As uh, the four kings begin to rout the five kings, as this battle rages, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah flee. Uh, there's two meanings for the verb form for fall, as it talks about falling into these tar pits, the first meaning is falling by accident. So it's like they're running along and they don't even see the tar pit and they just drop in there. And um, uh, they live in this area. I think they would know that there's tar pits there. And then the second one is voluntary lowering of oneself. So that's the the additional meaning for this verb. And so who went into the tar pits and, and for what purpose? Some believe that it was the two kings of Sodom and Gomorrah that went into the tar pits, while others believe it was some of their soldiers. 
Um, if it were the two kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, then it's likely that they voluntarily lowered themselves into the tar pits to hide because we see the king of Sodom greeting Abram after he returns from defeating the four uh, northeastern kings in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, which is what we'll see next week. So it's probable that they lowered themselves in there to hide. The others that fled to the hills are probably referring to the other three kings and their soldiers, along with the the two kings' uh, soldiers from Sodom and Gomorrah. So all the goods and food in Sodom and Gomorrah become the property of the four kings. They also took people as part of the spoils. Lot and his possessions were part of the spoils, and women and other people were also included, as we'll see in verse 16 here in chapter 14. Lot was being taken into captivity because he was living in Sodom. That's what Scripture tells us. So last week, Pastor Mark mentioned that Lot pitched his tents near Sodom. That was uh, Genesis 13, verse 12. Now we're told that Lot was living in Sodom. He had transitioned from living outside the city to living within the city. And last week we saw that the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Genesis 13, 13. Lot had to be aware of the spiritual condition of the men in, in Sodom. And yet he chose to live in the city and surround himself and his family with this sin. Living outside the city? Nah, I think we'll live inside the city now. He's just progressing more towards the world. And so how does this apply to us? The first principle is this. If you identify with the world, then expect to suffer what the world suffers. Like, like if you're not going to be set apart for Christ, and, and you're like, I'm going to keep one foot in the world, then when things happen in the world, you're going to suffer the same way as the world suffers. That's what Scripture's telling us here. For a lot, that meant being taken into captivity by the four northeastern kings. For you and me, it means being held captive by our sin. Because it controls and drives every decision we make. If your sin, uh, if, if the sin we're held captive to is sexual in nature, like pornography or some, uh, some other sexual sin, then that sin controls our thoughts and our actions. It drives almost every decision that we make, and we have to satisfy our desires. If the sin that we're held captive to is substance abuse like drugs and alcohol or anything else, then our thoughts and actions are dictated by the desire to get the next fix. If the, the sin, if the sin that we're held captive to is idol-based, like, man, this car that I have, or this person that I'm pursuing, or this possession that I have, or maybe it's a television, maybe it's a video game system, maybe it's whatever, <clears throat> a gun or a fishing rod or a boat, you name it. Everything we do will drive us to fulfill our desire for those things. If the sin we're held captive to is emotional, financial, physical, whatever it is, then our thoughts and actions will be driven by that sin. And then we'll suffer the consequences. We'll suffer the same way that the world suffers. Second Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 says this, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Paul writing to the Corinthian believers says uh, two things. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18, he says, Flee from sexual immorality. And then he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Then James writes in his book, in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. God doesn't tempt us. It's the sinful nature that we're all born with. It's this desire to have our own way, the desire to satisfy uh, the desires that we have in our hearts, the pleasures of this world, 
We're the ones. God doesn't tempt us. We're tempted by those things and we give in. So how do we handle being held captive by our desires and sins? Paul, writing to Galatians believers, helps us out here in chapter 5, verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. He says, live by the Spirit. Man, I'm, I'm constantly asking the Holy Spirit to just fill me for the different tasks, for pre- preparation of, of messages, and, and for counseling different individuals. And, and th- I need the Holy Spirit's help. And so I need Him to come. And I need to live by the Spirit, live by the fruit of the Spirit. Paul, writing to the Roman believers, goes on and he says, uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 14, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. This is stuff we have to do on a daily basis. We have to live by the Spirit. We need to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And continuing to write to the Corinthian believers, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Aren't you glad for that? We don't have to live under sin anymore. We don't have to be held captive by it anymore. Because the old is gone, the new has come. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. As followers of Jesus Christ, we don't have to suffer what the world suffers. We can show them a better way. We're not of this world. We're only passing through. But we need to be a positive influence for the gospel with those in this world. So that leads us to our first next step. Maybe you're ready to take that one today. And that's to break the chains of sin or sins that are holding me captive through living by the Spirit and clothing myself with Jesus every day. But that's just a constant thing that we have to do. We have to constantly do that every day. Jesus talks about the fact that we need to take up our cross daily and follow him. Lot had allowed himself and his family to identify with the world by living in a city that was sinning greatly against the Lord. And when we surround ourselves with those who are sinning greatly against the Lord, we can't help but be influenced by them. And so the consequences can be severe. We're going to suffer as the world suffers. And so this battle by the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, would have been pretty close to where Abram was staying, um, so he could have observed it from a distance. He was a watcher. He doesn't get involved until he receives a specific report. Then he becomes a warrior. Look at verses 13 to 16 in uh, Genesis chapter 14. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Anir, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hova, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. So we see four R words I'm going to use Uh, under warrior this morning. First one's report. One of the soldiers who had escaped to the hills came to Abram at the great tree of Mamre and told him that Lot had been taken captive. Now we're told here that Abram had a great relationship with Mamre and his brothers Eshcol and Anair. They were allies. They had each other's back. This is what my friend did for me. He had my back. And here... 
there's a couple of identifiers. Abram is identified as a Hebrew, and then Mamre and his brothers are identified as Amorites. And these are just ethnic identifiers. It was to help identify that Abram was not part of the Amorite tribe. He was different. He was set apart. This is the first time this word, I think, is used in Scripture. Then next we see not just that he gets the report, but then he rallies the troops. He called on the 318 men in his household that had been trained for battle. You know, at this point, Sarai and, and Abram uh, haven't had any children yet. She's still barren. So who are these 318 men that were born in his household? Well, Hamilton helps us out. He says here, Yalid, which is the Hebrew word for born, does not refer to physical descent. Rather, it designates membership in a group by a means other than birth. Here in particular, the term is applied to a slave or servant whose major function is to provide military assistance. These are the slaves that he'd been given in Egypt, I guess. And he's trained them. They're ready to go to battle. And it, most likely, Mamre, Eshkol, and Anir are joining Abram as he rallies the troops. And they set out in pursuit as far as Dan. And so again, you see the map, and it's <clears throat> moving up north again here. How does this apply to us? Many believe that when Abram and Lot separated, there were some kind of hard feelings between them. Abram was probably aware of how wicked and sinful the men of Sodom were, and perhaps he didn't approve of Lot living in the city. He probably didn't like him living near the city in the tents, but now he's living in the city. And yet, when Lot was taken into captivity, we don't seem to see any hesitancy from Abram in, relying, in rallying the troops and going after him. He was willing to selflessly sacrifice his time and resources to show Lot how much he loved him and cared for him. They were family. And this shows what incredible character Abram had. And you and I should pursue the same kind of character qualities as Abram. That leads us to the second principle today, that sacrificial service is one way of showing the love of Christ to others. It's so easy to justify not helping someone in need because they've chosen to live a life of sin. It's so easy for us. We're like, hey, they've made their bed and they have to lie in it. Good luck. And we just write them off, right? That's not what Abram did. That's not what Christ calls us to. No, Abram steps right in. Unfortunately, as Christians, we judge others, both Christian and non-Christian, based on what they do, how they live, or what they believe. And we never extend grace and mercy like God has done for us. We create division instead of selflessly serving now, we have to have wisdom to know when to help someone and when not to help them. There are times when helping can hurt because people um, are just, we're just enabling them to remain in, in a place where they shouldn't be. So we have to have wisdom to know. There's times where we don't help people because it's been year after year after year and it's the same story. They're not willing to take the steps necessary to make the change that they need so that they're not in that same situation. But in many other cases, we should be helping. We need to pray and trust the Lord to guide us concerning when to serve. And perhaps we've all struggled at times with showing the love of Christ to those in need. Maybe that's the step you need to take today, and it's this, to confess to the Lord that I'm struggling with showing his love to someone who's in need. Maybe that's right where you're at today. You're just really struggling, like, ah, and the Holy Spirit's been prompting you. You're like, I don't know. I don't, know if, I don't want to do this. And be obedient. Confess that before the Lord. And then the third next step is to just show the love of Christ to someone by sacrificially serving them this week. After you confess that, go and serve. You see, Christ's love is evident through our selfless sacrifice and service. 
Abram modeled this for us in such an incredible way. After he rallied the troops and caught up with the four northeastern kings, he planned his attack, and the third R is rout. Abraham used the darkness of night to his advantage. He divided his men. Now, we're not told how he divided them. We're not told the strategy that he used for dividing them and how he was going to defeat these four kings. Perhaps the best example would be Gideon and his small band of men who defeated the Midianites by surrounding the camp and blowing trumpets and breaking their jars to reveal the torches. We see that in Judges chapter 7. I don't know if he used that same tactic or not, but however it happened, we're told that Abram and his men routed the four kings, and that they pursued them as far as uh, Kovah, north of Damascus. And here's the third principle today. Victory comes when we trust God and obey his orders. While it's not directly stated in the text, we know that God was fighting for and with Abram. God was fulfilling his promises to Abram. He was going to bless him. This four-king fighting force that defeated six other groups before winning the battle against the five kings is now routed by Abram and his men. God has to be on his side. God has to be working for him, right? And giving him victory, giving him wisdom to know how to divide his men and to do it at nighttime. I mean, Abram's not coming up with this on his own. God is directing his path. And after the battle's over, Abram is able to recover everything. And that's the fourth R this morning, recovery. He recovers the goods and the people. It was probably more than just Lot's possessions and his family members and servants. It was also the other inhabitants and goods from Sodom. And so we see a fourth principle here today is that God does not abandon his children. Aren't you glad for that truth? Lot was blessed because of being related to Abram. Although Lot was living in a wicked city, God had not abandoned him. Even when uh, Lot is taken captive, God did not abandon him. Even when, and we're going to see this in several weeks from now, even when God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he doesn't abandon Lot. He gives him a way out. And the same is true for us. When we're living a life focused on ourselves and sin, God does not abandon us. He's still there. When we're held captive by our sin, God will not abandon us. The writer of 1 John tells us this in Chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He's waiting for us just to confess before him because he hasn't abandoned us. He's right there. And that leads us to the fourth next step today, and that's to claim God's promise that he will not abandon me by confessing my sins to him. We saw Abram as a watcher and a warrior this week. Next week, we're going to see Abram as a worshiper. And so as we just review a little bit today, I want to encourage you to, to clothe yourself with Christ and live by the Spirit each day. This is so important. Do you need to confess your struggle to love those in need? Are you ready to show the love of Christ to someone by sacrificially serving him or her this week? And then do you need to claim God's promise that he will never abandon you even when you sin? As a body of believers here at Idaville Church, we have the great privilege of showing others Christ's love through our selfless sacrifice and service. As we close this morning, I just want to read this illustration from Bruxy Cavey in his book, Reunion. The Victory Cross is Canada's highest military honor, similar to the Medal of Honor in the United States. These medals are awarded for personal acts of valor above and beyond the call of duty. Of the thousands awarded to date, more citations have been bestowed for falling on grenades, 
to save comrades than any other single act. The first Victory Cross of World War II was awarded to Captain Sergeant Major John Robert Osborne. The Sergeant Major and his men were cut off from their battalion and under heavy attack. When the enemy came close enough, the Canadian soldiers were subjected to a concentrated barrage of grenades. Several times, Osborne protected his men by picking up live grenades and throwing them back. But eventually, one fell in just the wrong position to pick up in time. With only a split second to decide, Osborne shouted a warning and threw himself on top of the grenade. It exploded, killing him instantly. The rest of his company survived that battle because of Osborne's selfless other-centeredness. Selfless sacrifice. Bruxy goes on and he says, I love stories of this kind of bravery and self-sacrifice. They give me hope for humanity and offer us a glimpse of God's goodness reflected in his image bearers. But no matter how beautiful that heroic act may be, through Jesus we see an even greater love at the heart of God. You see soldiers who fall on grenades do so out of love for their friends while they are on the battlefield trying to kill their enemies. Jesus died for his friends and his enemies and for everyone in between. And that's the greatest selfless sacrifice is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And, and uh, Abram was able to do it because he was faithful. We see that in the book of Hebrews, uh, talking about Abram and how faithful he was. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And so as we allow that to sink into our hearts and minds today, would you just bow your heads with me as Gene and Roxy come to lead us in a closing song? Lord, we, we come to you. Lord, we confess that there's times where we don't want to help those in need. We don't want to show them your love. We want to find some way to justify not to do it. And would you empower us to be obedient to you, to listen to your voice and your prompting. Lord, I pray that we would seek the same kind of character qualities as Abram as he modeled for us today, the selfless sacrifice and service to rescue Lot. May we do the same for those that are in our family, that are our workplaces where we learn, Lord, our neighbors. We just commit ourselves to you, and we ask this in Jesus' name.